Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Hello all, thank you for being here today. This is going to be a very quick introduction because Ben from the English Lab was on our previous episode targeting VCE students and giving great advice, feedback and support for any Year 12 English student before the VCE English exam and both of us are experienced English teachers as well as marking for different schools and giving exam feedback to entire cohorts and both of us have been VCAR markers so I did it in biology whereas Ben has been an English VCAR marker for many years so his insight is incredible and thoughtful so if you haven't listened to that episode and you are a year 12 English student or a teacher or a parent of a year 12 English student please share that episode and recommend it to those that would get a lot out of it. This episode Ben and I are targeting teachers so we talk about our shift in teaching, the way that we show up in the classroom, lessons that we've learnt, as well as Ben's leadership style and how that has evolved over time through working with staff. He has held positions of head of English as well as head of curriculum and he also discusses the reason that he felt the need to step away from the classroom this year after over 10 years of teaching and it's certainly not a unique tale It is something that I've heard from many teachers needing that break and needing time to move away because as much as we love this profession, this profession can be all-consuming and it can take a lot out of us. And I love how honest Ben is. I love how vulnerable he is. And I think that many of us can relate to what he says. And if you are a new teacher, it's not quite a cautionary tale, but certainly one to keep your eye out for and to ensure that you do remain balanced in your teaching because it is very easy to let it overwhelm you and to feel as though you're being taken advantage of if you don't put up clear boundaries for yourself. So here is Ben from the English Lab. Hello, Ben. Lovely to have you back. How are you? Yeah, really well. Thanks, Laura. How are you? Good, good. So this episode is much more dedicated to teachers and teachers of English and how we can support them. So the first question I'd like to talk about is how we support our students with burnout, especially close to the exam. I used to find that students would be really enthusiastic and the week out, they just burn out or they would dedicate so much time to English. And a lot of teachers of English will understand this where you get so much inundation of work and and all of that, but then the kids burn out for the other exams or the teachers don't have the energy to respond. Mm. So how do we deal with that as teachers and how do we deal with supporting our students through that? Yeah, it's a it's a really important one because I think, as you said, it's it's so easy for us sometimes to have that motivation and and we try to do everything at once and then we end up falling in a hole. And and I know I've definitely been guilty of that myself. I think for, for teachers at this time of year, it's about having really clear boundaries and and expectations in terms of setting that really clear expectation to students that right, if you bring me some practice work, I don't want four essays 
I want the best essay you've written. I, I don't want us to be doing more work. And, and I'm trying to model that for students that, you know, we could sit here and I could read all four essays that you may have written, but really it'd be best for both of us if we just read the best one that you've done and, and work with it from there. And also saying things about, okay, if you bring me a piece of work, what's a reasonable amount of time where I'll be able to come back to you and read through it? I always found, and it's going to be different for different people, that rather than going home with 15 practice pieces or something that students might have brought me and thinking, right, I'm going to mark them and then write stuff on them and then give them back, I always found that I could be much more efficient with my time if I could make a 15-minute appointment with that student. You know, it puts it back on them a little bit for the responsibility and saying, okay, this is great that you've done this work, but I don't think you'll get much out of it if I sit down at night and, and write a whole bunch of feedback and then hand it back to you. I think you'll get more out of it if I sit down with you for 15 minutes, we read it together, and I can then, you know, start highlighting things or putting little asterisks here within the work while you're reading it with me. So that way it's direct instruction that's right there. And I always found it much easier to be able to think, okay, I'm going to ask three or four of these kids to either come and see me at lunchtime or we'll be in our regular classroom, you know, straight after school and you, you start making appointments and it puts the onus on them as well that I'm not here as a marking machine to just sort of churn out feedback for you. But if you want this feedback that we, we can sit down together and, and I find that A, a lot easier on time and B, I, I think a lot more effective as well. So I think those those expectations need to be there, particularly with students now have you know grown up in a high school where they've always had you know, their learning management systems like Compass and all those types of things and email. And, and so, you know, teachers are never really off the clock yeah. at, at this time of year. So that, that expectation needs to be set early in terms of, look, I'm here to support you, but there needs to be a reasonable expectation about how that's going to happen. And for students, oh, for, for, for burnout, I think it's about not, obviously knowing the, the kids really well and knowing who's going to need that extra monitoring. Mm. You know, for some students, they need, you know, a fire lit under them to, to get them <laughs> yes. doing some work. But for some of them, it's about making sure that we have that idea of, okay, are we working smarter or are we working hard? And that, that is a bit of a cliche, but I think it's so important that sometimes that idea of they feel good because they've done four or five hours of some really hard work. And that being able to have that conversation with, well, was it all efficient? Were you actually getting a lot out of it? And and trying to make sure that we can give them some strategies to work on things and be really direct with what they're working on and then to switch off and to give them some time. So I know last year I gave students of mine like a, um, a bingo sheet and it had things on there that they had to do, but in amongst, you know, sit down for two hours and do two pieces in two hours and practice that sort of turning from one piece to the other. Next to that on that sort of bingo card they had to fill in was go for a walk with mum and dad or take the dog for a walk or go and uh, go and get a coffee with a friend or something like that. So that idea of really trying to push to them, you know, this studying period is unique, but that has to be a balance. Can't just be all out working on these things, but find find something that works for you with rewarding yourself as well with time away from the study. Yes. There's two things that I'd like to add as well. The first thing is something that I've experienced as a teacher. And to be honest, I probably was teetering towards that burning out towards the end of the time before I went on maternity leave because of the constant accessibility that I felt that I had. And the way that I would frame this for myself is if a student emailed me, if I just email it back quickly, then it's done. But what happens, and I don't know if you've felt this before too. What happens is the kids go, oh, they're right there. I'll write back. Mm. Then they write back. Then they write back. Then they write back. And so you think, oh, I'll get it quickly mm. off my plate. I'll email it back quickly. But then what ends up happening is you get into a conversation or a discussion and the kids that 
are then used to you being so quick at responding that if you don't respond quickly, well, where are you? What have you been doing? What's going on? And you really set an expectation for yourself. And I say this because I did it, that the kids begin to rely so heavily on you. Whereas if you give them a little bit of time and space, maybe in that time, they would reference somewhere else. They'd find the information themselves and you wouldn't be the the only person that they that they come to. And I think that probably with remote learning as well, it's really challenging for teachers to know where that line is, but you need to create one really clearly and your students need to respect that because you are not available 24-7, nor should you be. Absolutely. I I think another thing with that is that in terms of feedback and so on, and and particularly for English teachers, I I would be saying that two or three pieces of uh, points of feedback and and no more. I think sometimes teachers can be their own worst enemy, particularly English teachers. And and I worked with a lot of colleagues of mine saying, you don't have to be handing this piece of work back with notes all over it and things there. It's after two or three things, really, how much are we saying to, to that student that we don't want to be overloading them with feedback. We want to be clear and direct. And most of the time, and I'd have students, and sometimes I think because they'd been conditioned by other English teachers they'd had, sometimes they felt like, does this guy know what he's doing? Because I'd read a piece, I wouldn't write anything on their writing, and down the bottom I'd put one and then I'd write something, two, this. And sometimes they'd say to me, is that it? And I'm like, yeah, well, if you can come back and you can do those two things, then we'll then we'll find something else. But it was really about, okay, I only want you to focus on this and this. And of course, I would eventually write on their piece and I'd highlight things in their paragraphs or I'd put little points where they need to get better at certain things or this is where I need you to do this. But making sure that teachers aren't seeing reading a practice essay or things like that as, okay, I'm going to sit down for 20 minutes and I'm going to draw all over this and give notes on every little thing because I think that's overdoing it, not just for you, but also it gets to the point where it's not working for the student either. You know, the, the student needs to have that idea of, okay, they've read my piece. They've told me that I've got to focus on this and this when I write the next one. So now I'm going to go away with just those two things, maybe three, and I'm going to try and do those. And it starts that dialogue. So then they come back and they go, okay, you told me to do these two things. Have I done it with this piece? And that from there, we can keep jumping on and keep moving on. As opposed to if we give something back and it's got 23 little individual things written and scribbled all over it, it's a bit of a mess, you know, in terms of how does a student go, okay, I've got to remember all this and I spelled that word wrong and I did this. Let's just, let's just focus on the two things that that need to happen. Not, not 23. I got to that later on in my teaching as well, in that I would realize that if they actually did these two things, then it would pave the way to develop the next two things and the next three things. And absolutely within my first few years of teaching, I would have so much feedback over the kids' work And exactly that, it's actually really overwhelming. And I've had this a lot because I'm tutoring. I'll focus on the things that I think are the most important things to develop the writing and to develop the insight. And then from there, knowing that there are things that could be improved, but can't really be improved until those initial things are Mm. rectified. And I'll often get, well, my teacher said this. And it's that kind of, in a way, that accusation of, (laughs) didn't you pick that up? Right? And I'll say, yes. You can do those things, but unless you fix these two things first, those Mm. things won't come. So I think that's absolutely so important to understand that you don't have to give everything. You just give the things that are going to develop the writing step by step. And the other thing I wanted to say too, as you said about the feedback, speak to your kids actually about Mm. how they prefer their feedback. I had a student come on this podcast that said, look, if I get 
a mark of, you know, eight out of 10 or a B plus and higher, I don't read the feedback because that's where <laughs> I expect to be. And I can understand that completely. I actually did that with biology. I would have the biology sack. So I would realize that the kids never looked at their sack. They would just look at the mark that I'd given them. And then they'd come up and get angry. Well, why did I lose this mark? And I said, well, have you even looked at it? So what I would end up doing is I'd give them back their blank sacks. I would give them their assessment criteria blank. And I would then go through. And did you just say you did VCAR marking? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I learned this from doing VCAR marking for biology is I went through the assessor's guide. Yeah. So I, I told them how I'd marked it and then they had their their assessment in front of them, they had the assessment sheet next to them and they had to actually look at their answers, mark themselves and then after they we'd gone through the whole exercise, which is to me if you have an opportunity to do VCAR marking, it is one of the most incredible PDs because that's how they do it. That's, you know, they go through the marking scheme, you then have to mark and so by the time we'd gone through that, I would then give them back my assessment and often I was kinder because I would be able to see, you know, some of the nuanced yeah. things that they couldn't quite get around. And so I never got any negativity. They understood it. Their understanding of the concepts improved dramatically and they were so much more effective as learners. Getting back to the um, the boy who said that he never looked at feedback, he said, if a teacher actually came and sat with me and talked about what I was doing right and wrong, I'd listen and I'd be much more engaged in that. And so if you flip that idea that we have to work harder than the kids, yeah. we don't. No. Let's be smarter. You know, we, we say that to the kids all the time, but are we yeah. working smarter? And, and I know and, and it can be something and I feel like it's a little bit, it's like control a, a little bit. It's like, well... But oh, we love there's 23 things wrong with it. You know, I, I need to point out every little thing and, and actually think, yeah, but is that working? And and is that actually yeah. having any? And I think, like, as you said, with with the VCAR marking, that moved me as well with um, from having done the VCAR marking for English for a long time with I'd, I'd mm-hmm. get out the expected qualities and I'd show it to the students. And, you know, sometimes I'd make a joke and I'm like, this is what the examiners read. Like, this is like a secret. <laughs> but, but they could find it by Googling it, you know, in two seconds. Yes. Uh, it's obviously it's transparent. <laughs> it's open for everyone. But that changed my marking to being rather than because sometimes yeah, students go well what is this out of 10 then what is it out of 10 is it a, is it a five is it, and I'd say well it's irrelevant but I'd sort of say students who are scoring in those one or two ranges above you are doing this yeah and sort of saying okay see where you've done you know whatever you might have done the reason why it's not getting up to that next part is because you know this is what you need to do so being able to frame it in that type of way of saying you know students who are scoring slightly better on this are doing you know whatever it might be and and i think that comes down to realizing how instruction works with, with anything like if i go on you know vce ski camp or something like that like i'm this awful unbalanced snowboarder but when i get to the <laughs> bottom the instructor doesn't say to me okay there's 45 things you're doing wrong. You know, you've got to fix your knees, your yeah. shoulders, you've got to do this, you've got to point. They say to me, right, this time when you're doing your turns, I want you to point your shoulders towards where you want to go and that's what I want you to focus on on this run. And that's it. Even though yeah. clearly there's, you know, hundreds of things that I'm not doing right that they're looking at me going, oh, my gosh, what is this guy doing? <laughs> but they're not telling me all of those things. They're saying, right, this is what we need to focus on first. And when you get that, there's going to be another thing after it. And I think that, like you said, it puts it back on the student too because you want that student coming to you saying, did I do that thing you asked me to? Not just saying, oh, read this and tell me what you think. You know, it, it's got to be, they've got to be active in mm-hmm. in not just looking at the feedback as like a, a report and like, okay, this is what happened, as in, okay, this is what I've got to do next. Yeah. And I think that, as you say, it's that continual dialogue between the teacher and the student. It's not just, oh, okay, I've got this to mark. 
I've put my feedback on it. I'm giving it back and it's no longer mine and no longer my responsibility. And I'd say that from both perspectives. I've written this essay. The teacher's got it now. I'm never going to read the feedback anyway. I've done what I'm supposed to do. It needs to be that give and take between both teacher and student. And I think we need to have much more conversations with the students in terms of their learning and what's going to be best for them and come to some kind of compromise in terms of, okay, well, I'm willing to do this. This is the time I'm willing to dedicate to that. This is what I'm hoping you'll get out of it. What about you? And somebody said this on the podcast the other day, we don't want teaching to be done to the students. Mm. We want to be teaching with the students. And I think that's what we said in our last podcast too is the fact that we learn just as much often from the kids and they inform our practice so much. And so I'd love to have more of that opportunity and for kids to feel valid in having those conversations too. Yeah, most definitely. So the next thing I want to talk about is for English teachers, how can we support our students and teachers in the preparation for exam? What kind of activities could they be doing? I've often said to students that I I wish that I could stand in front of them and say, right, here's this whiz-bang, unbelievable revision thing that you're never going to believe is going to work, but it does. (laughs) But ultimately, the bottom line foundation is that at this time of of year coming into exams, students need to be writing practice essays. It's the best bang for buck that they'll get. Of course, we don't want them only doing that, but it is that hard truth that you know, the, the student that has read sample pieces and seen how other people are going about it and then has practiced their writing. And whether it's right, wrong or otherwise, you know, essentially what that student is going to be judged on is what they do in those three hours. And that's going to be worth half of their mark. Mm. And so I'd say that to the kids. I'm like, I know that you've read that book twice and that you've, you know, you're halfway through reading it for the third time. And I know that we've had some great conversations, but if you're not working on your ability to express that through written expression, you might not be rewarded for the full understanding you have or the work that you've put in. So we need to be practicing what is going to be assessed. But on top of that, of course, we can't just be saying to them, just go and write. I think we also need to be practicing things like, you know, the mental planning of questions and breaking the skills down and thinking about what am I focusing on this time? So having individual little skills like, okay, I'm going to respond to three questions and I'm going to write some really detailed plans because that basically means I've done all the thinking for the essay. But the only thing I haven't done is, you know, the actual written cohesive writing of paragraphs and things like that. So other activities that we can be doing as teachers is to be trying to make it, trying to make things short and sharp as well, knowing that underneath all of it, we do want that, you know, harder work, I guess, of writing those pieces in the one hour time frame. But knowing that if we just keep logging that on students, it's just going to become tedious and, and, and you know, go the other way and not be uh, not be motivating at all. So things like showing them high-level paragraphs. It doesn't just have to be, right, here's a, um, here's a whole sample essay. Let's read this whole essay. But, okay, here's, here's a paragraph that we're going to read today and just really spending time breaking that paragraph down sentence by sentence, what works. And actually, it's like taking that deep breath and saying, okay, it might be a 40-minute lesson, but really all we're going to do is really break this paragraph yeah. down. So trying to find those, yeah, those, those smaller times. And I think as well, trying to find some protected time for them to, to do that practice writing. And, and that comes about with, um, in my experience, sometimes there's students that don't do as much at home as what we would like. Mm. So making sure that if we're preaching this idea that they need to be writing practice pieces, 
if we've got our double period that might go for an hour and a half or something like that, say, okay, we're actually going to do just an hour of riding during that double period and giving them some of that protected time. And I think just keeping your ear to the ground as well to see to see how they're going and knowing that sometimes going in with an activity that's going to be more fun than learning, you know, whilst the sort of uh, more serious educator in me says, oh, well, doing quizzes and stuff isn't going to really help them. The the personal side to it is going in and when you can see that their eyes are droopy and they're, you know, barely looking up at you and you think, these guys don't need anything to do with English this period. Yeah, (laughs) they actually need something where, you know, I go in with a, you know, the, the bucket of Snickers and Mars bars that I normally take to my year eights. So I'm actually going to take them into yes. year 12s today. And, you know, and we're going to change it up and actually give them that, maybe it might just be that one lesson that day where they're not just being hammered with practice pieces and things like that, but actually they got a bit of a break from it and making sure that we're, we're taking care of that side of them as well. And I think what you said before about us as teachers learning as well, the most success I've ever had with groups of year 12s was when they felt like I was in there with them. Yeah. And so... I, I used to come up with gimmicks and things like that. I remember quite a while ago, I, I went and bought about four or five bags of McDonald's during lunch and, and brought it in. And the idea was I told them and I hammed it up a little bit. I said, you know, I eat Mac- Macca's way too much. So for the next six weeks, I'm not going to touch any uh, any fast food because you guys are working hard and you're taking a step. I'm going to do that. And it was just a gimmick. It was yeah. a silly thing and all that. But it was that idea of creating this, you know, sort of sense of a collective sort of, you know, a bit of efficacy and a bit of like, okay, we're all working towards something. And so, you know, writing pieces with students as well, I think that's a great revision thing. I'd say, I'm going to write this piece during the week as well. I'm going to carve out a window of time. And, you know, again, I'd I'd say to them, I'm like, look, I've got two kids. I do all these things. If I can find an hour of time, you can as well. And next Wednesday, we're all going to come back. And I think it's so much more genuine for, for kids when they're going, okay, he's written this piece. And he did it this week, just like we did. And if I say to him, oh, I didn't quite know what to do when I got to that, or I didn't know how to analyze this. And he can talk about, well, this is what he did because he was doing it too. I think that's so much more motivating. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there's some gimmicky ideas and things like that. And, and obviously teachers going to have their own style with that. But I think any way that you can get the students feeling like, all right, we're on board here and, and I'm with you as opposed to I'm the one who's standing here telling you what to do all the time. However that can be achieved, I think, is um, is something that's really worth investing some time in. I agree. And I think VCE, especially at this time, can become really isolating because you are doing so much work alone and you're getting feedback for you and it's, yeah, it just seems to be very individualised. And I think sometimes we can create that collaboration. It's really nice. And as you say, it's funny, the things that you do or the activities that you create for your younger year levels Sometimes I love that. Like I remember mm. doing in my year 10 or 9 class once speed dating on a text. Yeah. So all the kids had a different character and they had to speed date as that character and they had to talk about, you know, stay in character and answer questions and chat about their life and all of that kind of stuff. I brought that into my year 12s once when we were doing COSI, yeah. which is about people in a mental yeah, asylum at the yeah. time. Yes, and so that was really interesting because they all had their different quirks and they all had different backstories and some of them were aggressive and some of them were really quiet and and shy and so they had to embody those characters. And, look, I'm not a drama teacher, but at least it got them thinking about the characters. They weren't stuck to a desk. They weren't having to write. They could articulate themselves in a different way and also it allowed that opportunity to see the characters in a different sense rather than purely seeing it in a text. Mm. And some of the other things I would do, a really silly thing, it's called the bus game. And I would do, we'd have all the kids in rows. They'd be in different teams. And 
at whoever's at the front of the row would answer the question. They just run up to the board and write it down, whatever the answer was, and they go back to the end, and then they'd all sort of move through as a group. And I'd get them to write the questions. Yeah. So that's the other thing for teachers. You don't have to do everything. Mm. And often the, t- the questions I'd embed were trivia questions or silly questions or, or you know, an advert question or a jingle or something mm. to kind of get them to laugh. And they didn't know if it would be school-related or trivia-related or whatever. But it just created a bit of entertainment. And I think that it can become so serious at this time of year and any way that we can embed a little bit of joy Absolutely. is nice. And, and, and it ends up having that that effect that we want because we know if we just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, we're... Yeah, it's going to get to a point where it's going to be to their detriment. So, yeah, definitely. As much as we can think about that, I think it's, it's really, really important on top of the, you know, the skills and the knowledge that we're trying to impart as well. Yeah. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and ask you, what is the best part of your job as a teacher? I think the camaraderie. I was I was lucky enough to work at a at a larger school, and so I worked in teams when uh, sort of junior school coordinating, and then in the VCE office. You have that understanding of how difficult and how trying the job can be sometimes, and that might mean that you know there might be some you know rat bag kid who's who's <laughs> keeps doing these certain things, and you walk into the office and they look at you and they go, "You're not going to believe," but so and so's done this again, and you end up having those times where you just. <laughs> you know, you're in hysterics laughing at it because you're thinking, I don't know what else we can do here. And, and it's that laugh or cry sort of stuff. And so I think that that idea of working with a team and seeing how hard everyone else is working. And I was lucky enough to work with some really, really fantastic teachers and some fantastic people and, and being next to them and seeing like, wow, you seeing how much they care about things and way of, of, you know, staying motivated and staying inspired when you see how excellent, you know, other people can be with some of these students and the things they can get out of them. So that idea of working in a team was, was always what I got most out of and and particularly when it came to curriculum as well I, I really loved sitting down with groups of people and saying right we've got today to do this a planning day or whatever right we're going to nut this out and, and getting excited about something that you're going to be able to put in front of the kids and so yeah really it's that teamwork aspect that, that I always enjoyed of teaching the most on top of that it was also working working with kids and and sometimes I think kids can write cards at the end of the year and they can say nice things and and those things are always great and they're always appreciated but I think Sometimes the kids can say things to you that they don't realise how affirming, how nice, how appreciated it is. And, and you know, it's just little things like, you know, students not being very motivated and, and particularly with young boys in year eight and year nine, I shouldn't say young boys, but, you know, young men actually getting them excited about English and, and things like that. And not where they're, you know, jumping through hoops and they can't wait to read of mice and men or something like that. But you can hear them say certain things like, oh, yeah, okay, or... or Students used to make fun of me a lot in terms of how they're like, God, you really love this book, don't you? And things like that. And that was always the best part for me that it was like, okay, we're not going to have this attitude of, oh, we have to read this book and it's boring. But it's like, no, this book is great if you really look at it. And I'm going to show you things that you didn't realize the first time around. And, you know, I always sort of found myself a little bit like the salesperson for for English and, and for reading text and these types of things. And I used to love that when you when you knew that you're having some success with kids that was sort of said, oh, I didn't really like English before this year and, and things like that. It was always that way of, of what made the, you know, the, the job worthwhile with, with those types of kids. Or, you know, sometimes they'd say things to you like, oh, you were away for two days at the, at the start of this week. Like we knew you were really sick because you never take a day off. <laughs> and I can, I can still remember that. You know, that was about yeah. five years ago. And I just remember that, that meant nothing to that kid to say that. It was just this throwaway line. But it's something I still remember five or six years later when it's like, oh, okay, they really appreciate that 
they know that if I wasn't there for two days, like I must have been crook because <laughs> I was committed to helping them. And so, yeah, whenever you get that sort of feedback, and it doesn't have to be some really long, nice card, and, and those things are great, but those things where you realise that the, the kids are really showing you that they appreciate what you're doing and that they're getting something out of it, but they're telling you that without them even really knowing how much it means to you. I think that was something that always always gave you that little spike of, yep, this is why I'm doing this and this is why I really enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because I think as teachers we have the same opportunity. We are quite influential, you know, and those little flippant comments that we're having on a bad day or those dismissive off-the-cuff suggestions, they can land quite heavily for students. And in the same way, students can have, I mean, I've certainly got a a thicker skin now than I did when I started. You know, the insults kind of roll off quite well now. (laughs) Not that I get a lot, to be fair, but, you know, you can kind of distance yourself from the personal element of it. But some of those comments do really land for the teacher. And, you know, to get a student look at you and say, thanks for that class today, miss. Mm. I mean, that alone is so beautiful when they don't have to say that. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and that's always, it's always nice when you get that, that sort of appreciation that you think, oh, actually, yeah, they're enjoying this. And, and often, Unfortunately, with English, I think because they see it as that, oh, it's that subject, we, you know, we have to do, you know, it's that, oh, you know, it's that core subject, we have to do it. And often if we're getting to sort of year nine, year 10, there's some of those students that are really getting to that point where they're, they're just about done with it. And they don't, and to be able to turn some of them around, and, and like I said before, you know, you're not having success where they're, you've turned their entire attitude around, but they've actually looked at you like, yeah, actually, this isn't too bad. Yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah. like the way you did that and, and that's what I used to say. I don't think, you know, that there are good texts or, or bad texts, you know, like there are to a, to a point, but so often it's about the way that text is sold to the student and that, you know, your optimism and your excitement and, you know, I used to ham it up quite a bit. I'd, I'd be like, oh, how good was that? Whatever the, um, you know, the author had done or something like that as a way of really trying to get them to to see that and, and to get into it and to be excited by it, I think always made a... Um, made a big difference. And whenever I had kids doing that, like, oh, do you really love this book, don't you? <laughs> I, I think, yeah, well, that, that's what I want. I want them to yeah. to not, they don't have to love everything that we do, but to think, oh, okay, yeah, no, I get it because of what's been, what's been said. Yes, definitely. And I mean, it's our job also to try and create relevant opportunities where we can, I suppose, and to get their investment where we can. I think that's part of the teaching really of a text yeah. anyway. There's so much time. And I used to have uh, debates with it with a good friend of mine about, you know, <laughs> Is it about the resources and the assessments that we're putting in front of them? or And you think, well, if you haven't got them in terms of them feeling that that you're on their side and you're there to help them, you can have the best resources in the world. you know. And, of course, those resources and all those things are really important. If the resources are no good, well, then we're not going to have some you know, effective teaching and learning. But, you know, that first step is is them feeling like, okay, yeah, this person, um, you know, gives a hoot about me and, and want, wants some success from me and... and yeah. And I think if you don't have that, yeah, you know, the rest of it can can sometimes become, you know, <laughs> pretty irrelevant. Yeah, it was just that mutual investment, really. Mm, most definitely. So you're having a year off this year. Can you tell me the why behind that? Yeah. So it sort of came about at the end of last year. I'd sort of uh, both personally and and professionally, I'd sort of felt like I'd had my foot to the floor a little bit, yeah. you know, for, for a good 10 years. In my personal life, I'd sort of had a lot of things that I wanted to achieve and, and, and to get done. And it always felt like there was always something coming up on the horizon that I was planning for. And, and that was sort of the same professionally. And 
you know, I'd always put a lot into my job and, and wanted to move into to leadership and things like that and, and was lucky enough to do so. And the way that I'd got myself to that point was by pushing myself quite hard. And I sort of got to a point where things probably could have relaxed a little bit and yeah, it brought about, you know, a few questions I had to ask with how I'd been approaching all, all those things. And so I just really needed some time away. And, you know, and that, that, that was really hard to do because there's a lot of people that I felt and still do feel really close to it at the school that I worked at. And, you know, I felt an obligation with certain things that I was trying to achieve at the school and things that I've been working on for a long time with people. And it did take a while for me to get to that point where I had to actually say to them, no, I actually, I need some time here, you know, for me to, to, to get myself right. And I guess that sort of started coming about with, for the first time ever, I'd, I'd sort of had a few mornings where I was thinking, oh, could probably do with not going in today. <laughs> and that was no one else's fault. That was nothing to do with the kids that I was working with. That was nothing to do with the colleagues or the school in any way. And, and there was that realisation for me that that motivation that probably was lacking a little bit and a little bit of the cynicism and things like that that was starting to come about were probably more based on where I was. And so I needed to be away from that. And I think when I had those first signs of um, of not enjoying it as much, I think it really was a bit of a light bulb for me in terms of, oh, I need to do something about this because I don't want to be hanging around and becoming that person who's who's bitter and cynical and things like that. I need to, you know, stop and evaluate and think about how I want to go about it rather than, you know, continuing on down, down a road that, that might go somewhere where I don't want yeah. it to. Would you recommend people potentially taking a step back or considering other roles or things like that if they're hitting that point? Because I think often teachers get into the role and they push themselves really hard to reinvent the wheel, to be everything for everyone, to take on all the extracurricular activities, all of that sort of stuff. And it's not sustainable. And I'm telling you that as somebody who knows it's not sustainable because I've tried, I still remember once I I was doing mm. the production and it was at the very pointy end of the production. So we were three rehearsals, so two after school, one on a Sunday, possibly we were doing the bump into the theatre and I was teaching two year 12 classes and I still remember reading off a PowerPoint slide, which I hate doing. It's like the worst form of teaching for me. <laughs> and I stopped and I said, does this, I'm so sorry, I'm so tired. Does this even make any sense? And the kids looked at me yeah. and said, no, no, we get it, we get it. But I felt in that moment, I've got to change something because I'm not yeah. being a good teacher right now. I'm spread way too thin. Nothing I'm doing I'm particularly proud of because I'm too tired. Mm, absolutely. I think that what can be so challenging in, in our profession is that idea that <laughs> you're never going to be able to walk away from a day or a term or a week and say, oh, perfect, 10 out of 10. Yeah. You, know, you always know that there are things that could be done better and and the role that I was in uh, when I took a break was head of curriculum. And so that was really about looking at all of these things. And, and like you said, with reinventing the wheel and so on, you know, I went in with such enthusiasm mm. and, you know, I was going into a role where we had a really great documented curriculum. We, we had a lot of things going well. It wasn't like I was walking into something that was, that, 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 that was causing stress, but it was that idea of, well, you're never going to get this right. <laughs> There's always going to be that point where, okay, this is excellent, but what about this? And what about that little element? And are we actually doing that the way that we should? And are we doing this? And is every teacher at the school doing this? And is everyone aware of this message? And there was so much. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, that that enthusiasm, that motivation that so many people can have, and that I had for a really, really long time is 
a great way of driving you towards doing some really positive things. But if you don't keep it in check with being able to accept what you can and can't change and and that things will take time to change or that you're not going to change everything and make everything great overnight. Mm. Yeah, I I probably realised with a bit of self-reflection that that's probably what led me to where I was, that I'd bitten off more than I could chew for for too long. And the irony of that was that I ended up in a point where I was really struggling to get up and go into work. And that's the last thing that I wanted. And I was no good to anyone. So yeah, I think it comes with a personality of a lot of teachers that where do you draw that line where you can feel comfortable with with the job that you've done? And, and I think that's something that can take a lot of people a, a long time to get towards because when you do draw that line, there's guilt that comes with that. If you feel that, okay, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. And you think, well, maybe there'll be some people, some of them t- sometimes students that are, that are going to miss out. But because you can never do the job to a capacity of it being 100 out of 100 where everything's going well and everyone's happy with you and you're not letting anyone or anything down, you know, where do you draw that line? And that was something that I really struggled with. And I never thought that I'd get to the point where I would leave the profession as, as I have and take a take a break from it. I sort of had seen myself as, yeah, I'll just keep moving along and doing this and keep working towards these things. And it, it all happened very suddenly. Um, so... I think it's just, yeah, my advice to to other people is, you know, take your time and draw your lines and and find that place where you're comfortable with because, you know, you you don't want to get yourself into a point where you're uh, you're no good to your family or or to to the people that rely on you at school. So there's got to be that line in order for for it to be able to work. And a really upsetting realisation to make is that everybody truly is replaceable. You don't have to wear yourself Mm. into the ground because no one else can do it. It's not the truth. Yeah. You know, and yeah. we do tend yeah. to create that element of pressure for ourselves that, but I have to, they rely on me. This needs to happen in order to get good learning. I need to do this. And you end up, I think so many times I'd create a worksheet. I'd created the same worksheet the year before and the year before, and I'd either forgotten I had it yeah. or I didn't like it. So I'd redo it. And the amount of times that I would be doing yeah. that, you know, and you feel like you have to, but you don't have to. And you can take a step away and you can work smarter and it's okay to put yourself first because I think as teachers we don't do that very much. And I think the school sort of sucks you into being part of this really large machine and you feel like you can't stop because then that stops so many other elements. But you can ask for support, absolutely, and I think that teachers actually yeah. like to support other teachers. We really like doing that. Most definitely. And and I was very lucky in the leadership of my school who were, who were so supportive of that. And that idea of being replaceable, you know, it's a bit of a, an ego thing. And so as well, where I remember sort of, I was saying to my wife, I was like, oh, but I can't take a break because you know, I've got this on the back burner and this is happening. And if I'm not there for that, and it was that case of, all right, mate, you're not that important. Listen, it- <laughs> you know, like, and I was really lucky with the, the leadership of my school who were able to say, you need a break and then say, look, we really appreciate what you've done. And we, you know, obviously there'll be things that will be a little bit more difficult, but you know, if you're not here tomorrow and for the next week or for the next term, you know, the sun will still come up and, and the, the work will still get done. And, and that, that, if I'm being truly honest, that, that did take me a little while. It's a bit of an ego thing with, you know, thinking, oh no, but if I'm not there. And so, yeah, and I guess it sort of bleeds into what I was talking about before that, you know, I'd worked myself into that point where, in the end, that attitude was more negative than it was positive. You know, it wasn't that thing that was keeping on driving me. It was that thing that was placing more pressure and and ended up, you know, getting me to a point where I felt that I needed to take a break rather than being more moderate about that 
along the way and, and keeping myself motivated yeah. with what I was doing. You've said that you were moving towards more leadership prior to taking a break. So you said you were head of English faculty and head of curriculum. Is that right? Yeah. So how would you yeah. describe yeah, your leading right. style? Again, it was a bit of a, a bit of a journey. It, it definitely changed. Mm-hmm. And a little bit like what I've said, when I started, it was a bit like, okay, here I go. I'm going to do everything and I'm going to show everyone that I can do everything and that I'm the one to be relied on. And I quickly realised that that A, wasn't sustainable and B, wasn't actually that effective after a little while as well. And even though I, I never saw myself as being sort of autocratic with, okay, I'm telling you how it is and I'm going to be nasty and that's it. I was always, um, I'd like to think, very friendly and approachable and, and good at working with people. I would have to be honest in saying that I did have a lot of belief in what I believed in and then I sort of saw my role as, okay, I'll get everyone else on board and get them to understand how I see things and then we'll all do it this way and everything will be yeah. great. And and realising quickly, if you don't bring people with you and if you don't do things in a way where people have buy-in, then you're really working against yeah. yourself. And so I, I, I learned that quickly through some failures and through some things that... Uh, I realised that it was so much more effective for me to be a lot more collaborative and and instead of it being, I guess it's probably because how I'd seen leaders and leaders that I'd liked were 100%. always modelling and, yeah, and, and doing everything and, and that go-to person and, and can always help you out. And, and of course, there, there is that aspect of that with leadership, but realising that I was going to be much more effective working with people if I was able to you know, I guess a, a really good example of it is like with the creation of resources and so on like that, rather than saying, okay, I've written this unit of work and it's all planned, it's all documented, it's all here, let me tell you how to teach it. <laughs> it was more sort of saying, okay, let's find some time and work on it together. So that way, instead of it being, okay, there's one leader and there's these eight, you know, year eight teachers that are just having to do what he said because he thinks it's the best way of doing it. It was that case of, all right, well, we all worked on this together. We all feel good about it. We've all had contribution to it. We've all got ownership over it. So then when we're in the classroom teaching it, we're not teaching someone else's thing. Mm. We're working on this collective unit that we've put together. And so I guess it changed from that idea of, you know, sort of follow me to, it sort of sounds a little bit like, you know, business talk and all that, but it's a little bit like, I guess I saw my role as a leader to provide the right structures for people in, for them to do a really good job. Mm. And so it was that idea of, okay, when we have meeting time or when we have our planning days, I'm going to make sure that things are really well organised and that our objectives are really, really clear and I'm going to support people and I'm going to have two or three key things that we've got to make sure are here in our planning and I'm going to put them in these teams and I'm going to be in those teams and moving around and providing those extra questions. But my job isn't to do the work for people because a lot of the time they don't want that either. (laughs) My job is to facilitate you know an environment where they are being able to produce these things and making sure that it's all working you know cohesively together so i sort of feel like i'm in a job interview sorry it's <laughs> um i no, 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 don't apologize i just you find yourself talking like that i'm like oh but i i think that is and that that's when you start to realize that actually some of those really effective leaders sometimes when they're stepping back it's not because they don't know how to do it. It's because they realise that if they're really going to have success, if their team's going to have success, it's going to be because they've allowed other people to do those things and that they've got that buy-in from all the people that they're leading. Yeah, and I think too, as somebody who, like my love has always been in the classroom and I've always seen the idea of moving too much into leadership, taking me too far out of the classroom, which is not how I've wanted my career to go thus far. Yep. But as yep. someone in a faculty being led, you want to empower us right? You want us to feel as though we're valuable. You want us to feel as though our ideas are heard 
And within a faculty, I can tell you that I'm good at some things, but I'm not great at everything. And there are other people Mm. in the faculty that I would turn to to have a conversation or have a discussion. And I think if you lead thinking that you know everything and you lead believing that you have to fill the faculty with your information rather than draw out the value that's there, I think that's a really missed opportunity. Absolutely. And and I think on, on top of that, I think you need to be flexible as well to making sure that you're not just, okay, here I am in front of the meeting and I'm just going to talk, that you've got to be listening and, and, oh, yeah. and got to be flexible. And, and I liked to think that I was very flexible with helping people a lot of the time because I knew that sometimes I was going to have to be inflexible about certain things. And yeah. that, that was really hard. And I wanted to make sure that I had enough credits in the bank where people thought, no, he's really flexible about A, B and C and D. Because then when they asked, well, what about E? Oh, I'm really not. And I had to say, look, you know, this is where I've got to be a little inflexible. And you are going to have to be the bad guy sometimes telling people things that perhaps they don't feel that they should be doing or school-wide goals that they might have, certain things that they they might push back a little bit. But if you've got those credits in the bank where they feel, no, he listens to us all the time. So if he's actually telling us that it, it must be this way on this, okay, we're going to get on board and, and get in behind him. So yeah. I think that's really important that people feel that they're heard so that they're not just feeling like they're being dictated to the you know the whole time. Yeah, and I think too the element of transparency is important for people from a leader. If mm. you feel as though you're getting the full story all the time and you have the why behind decisions, I think that that does assist in the buy-in quite significantly as well. Yeah, mm. most definitely. What do you think about the fact that English for VCE is always counted in the top four? I <laughs> I think that I'm going to declare, obviously, a really strong <laughs> bias in thinking that I feel that, yep, yeah. it definitely should be. But uh, saying that with the full appreciation that that's how I see the world in that I see the importance of, of English as a subject. And, and I can say that with the privilege of always finding it a subject that came quite easily to me and that I enjoyed and that I haven't been that student that's sitting in a year 12 English classroom going, God, if I could be yes. out of here, I would be. I, I can't believe that this has to be one of my um, my top four. But I think where it comes down to is a little bit of what English is supposed to be and, and what it actually is. I think when I get asked that question, I sort of think that that's where it leads me to and that I would suggest that you know, if you were to look at any program that was, you know, uh, where students were finishing their secondary schooling, wherever it was, you could mount an argument that an essential part of that would be critical thinking and communication. And that that should definitely be a part of any student's journey through an education, that that must be there all the way through. And, And so that's the way that I view it in terms of, well, that's why English is so important, that no matter where students are going, the ability to have language, the ability to think, the ability to think critically, the ability to recognise, you know, manipulation and prejudice and things like that that exist, I think it's so important that students have that up until that last lesson that they're there at a secondary school. But I can definitely understand that whilst that might be the idealistic way of, of looking at, uh, at, at, at VCE English, I can understand why people would feel that, well, okay, maybe that's not yeah. what's what's happening in, in every classroom. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, I guess you've just always got to be aware of how you see you know, the world and how you see the, the, the subject in, in terms of, okay, it's easy for me to say that I think it should be a part of it. But maybe if if there was some way of us making sure that um, that English was more about that ability to communicate and to think for, for all the time, uh, that, that maybe it would be easier to make that connection or make that argument. And through some glitch in the timetable, I always seem to find myself with those students who were studying science 
who were really top students who, yeah. who struggled with English. I, I can think back now in the last six or seven years, I can think of 10 kids off the top of my head. And so I did always have that understanding of them and I'd speak to their bio teacher and their chem teacher and then they'd be doing methods and they'd go, oh, such a high flyer and so on. And I'd be thinking, they go, yeah, they, they struggle to write a full essay and, and these types of things. And I'd always feel for them because a lot of the times those students had really high aspirations and ambitions about, you know, universities and ATARs and things like that. And they were saying to me, my fifth subject's going to be whatever it might be. And I'll probably get a really high score for it, but it won't count as much as, as what I get here with English. So, you know, I, I do see it from that, that point of view as well. But I think that that opens up that can of worms about <laughs> the ATAR and, and how all those things work. And I think, you know, from conversations I've had, I think people are becoming a little more savvy where we're now starting to think about, okay, do we start to specialise by year 12 and, and are we working with student strengths? And and I think that opens up a really good conversation for, for where English fits with that. And, you know, we could be here forever talking about that, but I think with the way that it's assessed and with everything being analytical and that, you know, that way that it's there, is it actually achieving that goal of being about thinking and, and communicating, which I think are essential skills, but I would be fully aware that people could mount an argument that the way that VCE English is structured, that perhaps that's not what's happening yes. in every classroom. I think the thing I love about English is the fact that it probably has the most real world skills that I can see in a subject because it's, you know, look at the current debate, US debates that's going on. Mm -hmm. You have the ability to analyse language. You have ability to analyse body language. You have ability to critically analyse whether or not they're answering that question. Are they the things that kids do in an essay? Yeah. Skirt around the actual situation. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's so much real-world application that happens. I mean, and this is the hard part, you know, you give them an article from the paper that is a current situation that they could be reading at their table in the morning over a coffee when they're 10 years older. Yeah. But are they making those connections? You know, they should be. We yeah. hope that they are. But are they really doing that? I mean, formulating an argument, whether or not you write an essay for the rest of your life or never write one again, your ability to formulate a good argument to back up a point, whether you're in an interview, whether you're in a heated debate with a friend, whatever, these are skills that you will need to learn. Are the kids making that connection with the curriculum as it is? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and uh, on top of that, that idea of, yeah, when you're saying formulating a contention, and, you know, those things that we fall back on. It's okay to have an opinion so long as you can back it up with evidence. And, and as you said, with things that are happening at the moment, if you, you know, if you're game enough to jump into the Facebook comments on certain <laughs> things that are happening be it with the pandemic or with, you know, the yeah. US, you know, presidential debates and those sorts of things, but you're looking at adults that have this sort of uh, <laughs> childish, well, this is just the way it is, just cause. And you think, oh, that's not a developed thought. And 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 that that's... You know, in that way, that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable for you to say that this is the way the world should be just because I think so. And and you look at that and you look at what we do with students with, you know, not just with them, you know, performing oral presentations or so on, but that ability to formulate a contention, but you must be able to put that back on something. And whether that's controversial or whatever it might be, that's fine. You can't just say just because. Uh, and so, yeah, and that ability to communicate, and I think, yeah, we can we can see that there in that, oh, this is really what we're trying to do. But, you know, I know I had a good friend of mine who we used to talk about sometimes those things with texts and you'd think, is this something that the student's going to get something out of for themselves? Are they going to have a better understanding of the world because we're covering um, misogyny or racism or something like this in this text? Are they going to walk away as 
better, more rounded people because they've considered other people's point of views? Or are sometimes we sacrificing that to get to, right, you've got to remember this about the text and here's all these quotes yeah. and things like that. You know, which which bucket are we filling? Are we filling the producing really good, well-rounded citizens who can think and empathise? Or are we filling the, hey, these are all the things you've got to know about this author and, and write this in an essay? You know, it's, it's always the challenge. It is. Yeah, it is. And I think the, that's that's the thing I've been finding in these podcast conversations is the fact that I think that idealism that teachers have is not often met with opportunity in the system. I think that's mm. where we're all at, really. I mean, it comes from everywhere. I mean, you've everything's ultimately everything's filtered down from the tertiary, you know, because yep. this is the way that they get in and then they need to be able to learn in that way through lectures and tutorials. And so it's all it all sort of comes from other elements. And so yeah, it'd be lovely to have just real world learning and great conversations and, and show our kids how we can support them to be lifelong learners in the world. But the how is still a bit of an enigma to me. Oh, absolutely. And and I think with everything that's happened uh, with, with students learning from home and so on, I think that's just thrown so many things in the air and so many things that we've, you know, that have just been taken for granted that now you look at it and you know, when, when the system gets turned upside down in that way, you start to look at it and think, well, when we go back, what could we do without or, or what, what do we need more of? And saying that, though, I think, you know, I'm always more than happy to, to hear other people's views on education and criticisms of it and those types of things. But then it always does come back to that at the end of the day, you know, you have this, it, it has to be this huge system that takes in these thousands of kids every single day. And so, you know, you've got to be thinking about that in that way of, okay, it's all well and good that we want this individualised learning for all these kids and all these sorts of things that have to be happening and all that sort of stuff. But it, you, you look at it and you think, well, is that always achievable? You know, there, there is going to be sometimes that case of, all right, we need to shepherd these kids into a classroom. We need to sit them down and we need them looking at a whiteboard. And, and I can understand why that has to happen when you look at the mass of the numbers and all those types of things. So, yeah, it's something that, that you can keep thinking about for a very long time, but, you know, it's, it's always that balance that you need to try and achieve. Yeah. On the back of that, what are your hopes for education in the future? I think it sounds, again, it sounds idealistic and it's, I guess, probably a, a pretty simple answer. But one thing that I've always, it has always been a bit of a thorn in my side is I think the, the respect uh, for the profession. And I think not just as out of an annoyance, like, oh, I wish it was, you know, teachers were more respected and things like that, but... I think that so much more could come from the profession if there was if 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 it was respected mm -hmm. more. And I, I think that, you know, that comes down to it being a more desirable profession for people. And, you know, I, I think as well, we, we think of historically when you when you walk into most schools, you know, how many young men, you know, in in Victoria or Australia are looking at, oh yeah, teaching, you know, this really well respected profession where I'm going to be seen as as this, that, and the other. And and that's for everyone. But I think you know, when you look at, you know, the balance between those types of things, well, what is it that's keeping some people from from teaching and the way that they're, that, are, that it's viewed as a profession by some people into, you know, the school holidays and stuff like that comes up, you know, ad nauseum. But you think, I think so much more could come from it if there were, if there was that, you know, more respected for what it yeah. is. And like we talked about with, um, with Corona and, and all those things that have happened this year, I think, 
lots of you know sort of funny things have been said on the surface with parents going my god it's hard to teach my kids things and things like that but i think there's something that exists under that as well with like okay all of a sudden kids couldn't go to school and <laughs> look at the disruption that yeah. it made and look at the implications that that might have if they haven't got this certain development or these certain things and and looking at, at young kids like um like my own my own daughter and so on who's, who's in grade one and how much she missed that connection with her teacher and her friends and I think, you know, maybe if people who have been very critical or don't show that respect for, for educators and, and for the system itself could maybe take a deep breath and realise, wow, this plays an incredible role in how everyone goes about their lives. And, and yeah, I, I just don't think that you have many people that, that spend time in schools that walk away criticising the job that people do because they see not just how, how tough it is as a job, but how important it is. And I know, you know, my both my parents were teachers, so I thought, you know, child of two teachers and obviously going to school myself, but I realised how much I didn't know about the, the the big bad world until, you know, I'd been two or three years into working at the school that I did and oh, realising yeah. the lack of opportunity that certain families had and, and certain things that I thought that I mm. knew that I realised, God, I don't know anything. <laughs> and, 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 you know, how many challenges certain kids face just to be getting there to school and, and those types of things. And, I think if, if more people could have an appreciation for that, so many more positive things that could come from that baseline of, okay, we need to be respecting this system, respecting the people that do these things and understanding its true worth yes. for all of us as to what it can do for these kids. And, and, and when we churn them out at the age of 18, no matter where they go from there, how valuable it is for us to uh, to have you know, people that have been through a really you know effective system that's, that's, that's putting out some really um, good people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this two-parter, Ben. I really appreciate everything that you've been able to shine the light on and give insight to as as both a, a teacher and a human and a parent and a leader and all of that. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, Laura. And thank you for having me on. I've, uh, I've really appreciated it and really, uh, really enjoyed it, actually. It's right. given me um, lots to think about and, and I've enjoyed the way that the conversation's gone in terms of it being always questioning where we are and, and what we're doing and, and all those types of things. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. So thank Pleasure. you.